May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. Regardless of whether Borrelia burgdorferi infection is responsible for their experience, many patients with chronic Lyme disease diagnosis believe that the medical community has failed to effectively explain or treat their illnesses. Many listeners with fibromyalgia or who have loved ones or patients with fibro likely have come across information about Lyme disease in their search for answers about their unrelenting, waxing and waning symptoms of pain, fatigue, and brain fog. To what should these symptoms be attributed? Most meet criteria for fibromyalgia, but these same symptoms have been attributed to a condition labeled chronic Lyme disease by the non-traditional medical community. Traditional medicine has offered and given little relief and answers for fibromyalgia, this often misunderstood condition. It is not surprising that their symptoms are attributed to an untreated infection lurking hidden in the body. The evidence to support it is often nebulous and soft despite often good intentions. Many treatments involved lifestyle changes. Lyme literate providers often give a tremendous amount of empathetic support measured by time spent reviewing their history and chart. Their symptoms are not dismissed. In this week's episode, we will wrap up the discussion about acute and late Lyme disease and then try to unpack and make sense of chronic Lyme and then make the connection between chronic Lyme symptoms and fibromyalgia and hope to offer real answers and real solutions for real pain, real fatigue, and for real brain fog. This is the Conquering Your Fibromyalgia podcast. I am your host, Dr. Michael Lenz. I am a pediatrician, an internal medicine physician, and a lifestyle medicine doctor. I've been a doctor for over 26 years. I also am author of the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain. The book and the podcast are for educational purposes only. All signs and symptoms should be discussed with your own medical physician. This is part two of the series on Lyme disease. We will pick up where we left off from last week's episode. This is a disease that has various stages. There is a late or chronic stage where... If untreated, we can get chronic arthritis. We can also have changes in the way we're thinking, behaviors, mood, and also fatigue. Sometimes we'll see in the pediatrics world, kids with mental status changes, or they'll come in acting very inappropriately. And that can sometimes be a manifestation of late Lyme disease. And a patient of mine who is an avid runner would run five, six days a week for six miles, he loves to run passionately, and he could barely get a mile, and I just had to stop. Head was hurting, completely wiped out, and I don't think I've ever had any patient with that who said, well, I feel a little off. I have a little allergy. It takes you out of commission, catches your attention with all of the symptoms, and are quite wiped out. 
The good news is, from all my experience in acute Lyme, is that usually within a couple days, like this one patient who I saw on a Thursday, Friday, I said, by Monday, you're going to feel a lot better. Within a week, he was back running five, six miles and felt good. Confections are satisfying when you can treat them. Obviously, that's one of the neat things about making that diagnosis. And it's great. I love when somebody has an acute Lyme. They have a rash. Sometimes a rash is not that bullseye rash. And if the people are listening, if they have uh, cell phones, I always say take a picture of your rash. Yeah. In medical school, you spend a month in dermatology clinic just to get good at describing rashes. That's also to be differentiated from a small little local rash right where the tick might have been buried, but not causing anything systemic. And the rash and the symptoms are about 10 to 20 days in incubation. So in Wisconsin, it's important to ask the travel question. And it's not just like we had during COVID, a place where there was COVID, which now is everywhere. But what were you doing two weeks ago? Well, in Wisconsin, we call it up north in the woods. But we live in suburban Milwaukee area where my clinic is at, and there's a state park just a few miles away. And I've had patients who just going through hikes through the grass and brushes. Any suggestions for people if they are out in the woods <laughs> trying to help yeah. prevent getting Lyme? The whole life cycle of the ticks and all of its different hosts is actually really interesting. You were talking about deer. That's where ticks lay their eggs, where they build their families and so what has to happen is in order for them to lay their eggs is they need blood meals throughout their life stages. And so what happens is typically once the eggs hatch, they end up turning into different stages. But one of the stages takes a blood meal on rodents and they'll take a blood meal and then they'll grow up and then they'll go back to the deer and then they'll live out their nice life cycle. Unfortunately, Sometimes we get in the way of that cycle and they end up taking a blood meal from us. The cycle is pretty complex, but typically when the nymph stage is developing early spring is the most infectious period. That's when people get Lyme the most because that's the stage that can transmit Lyme the best. But typically where you find deer, where you find rodents, where you find grasses, that's where you're going to find a tick. So a lot of hiking trails, where there are trails, the grass at the edges of the trail, that's where the ticks want to be. Their instinct is that that's where they're going to find the animals and that's where they're going to find the mammals that they need to feed on. So it's a lot of times grasses and Ticks can't jump, so we have to be rubbing up against the grasses. They need to crawl on us. They don't really fly. So it's those times where you're walking on trails or walking through grasses and they're climbing onto us and climbing onto our skin. So if you're trying to avoid tick bites, the best thing you can do is avoid those areas. But if you're adventurous and you want to be out in nature, then keeping covered, making sure that you are using light clothing so that you can find ticks after your trails, that's really important. Using DEET on our skin, following those directions, the deep wood, typically DEET 30 to 40 is what we would recommend in our older kids and our adults. But obviously, all of the recommendations on any of your cans of insect repellent, but also if you are an avid hiker, having clothing that has permethrin embedded into the fabric 
And then always after hikes and being outside, checking your dogs, checking your animals, checking your kids, checking yourself, doing a thorough tick check after those events is really important. If you find any ticks that you remove them as soon as possible. And we can probably get into talking about removal too. I wouldn't be a good steward of tick information if I didn't talk about how to take them off. (laughs) If you get it off within 36 hours, you're pretty well in the clear. One of the things I will tell my patients is make sure you check in the morning when you get dressed, a careful self-inspection or a partner can do a self-inspection on areas you can't see to make sure you don't have any. And then when you get in the evening, do another careful self-inspection. We often don't do a careful self-inspection when we're going through everyday life because who's caring if there's a little lint or something. But if you are in a known area that there are ticks, we often get calls where somebody says, well, I have a tick. It's a deer tick. What should I do? And I said, well, where have you been? Well, I just was out yesterday afternoon on a Sunday and they're calling on Monday. They weren't anywhere near ticks. Pretty strong support to say, good, you caught it early. The question is if you've been camping and you haven't been paying attention and you don't know how long it's in there, that gets to be that question. And sometimes people, if they're in a high endemic area, will do a one dose of doxycycline or moxicillin and then have careful surveillance. It's a shared decision with the patient on how they want to approach that. But going now from that acute stage where often you're very sick, about 80% of the time you can have a rash around where the bite was. Half the people who have Lyme, they don't recall a tick bite. They don't see a tick bite because a tick got your blood meal. I love how you say that blood meal. It's all the people who hopefully aren't eating right now. (laughs) They didn't know they were signing up for a vampire podcast. (laughs) Now move the early stage. Now to later stage. What are the symptoms of that? Yeah, this is still someone who has the bacteria that's present in their body. This is something that has gone untreated. Maybe they had very mild symptoms of early Lyme, or maybe they were just a sick person. You know, we have lots of patients that we see that have aches and pains. They have different diseases. And if they get Lyme disease, they may not notice that they're having different symptoms. They're not tested for Lyme disease. And we can put it on the providers as well. Lyme disease is missed uh, often because it is so general at the beginning, you can have pretty general symptoms. And so this are the stages we get later on and we can still have prolonged arthritis, but then we get some more chronic changes. So sometimes people can get pain in our nerves and we can get different changes in our behavior, changes in our ability to feel well rested. So people experience a lot of fatigue in those changes. And so that is someone who's still has been infected with Lyme disease, but was left untreated. They have this prolonged inflammatory state from having Borrelia in their body. So if there's clinical suspicion, I had a couple of patients who were initially missed. I think if most of the time, if you get a Lyme question, and of course you're going in infectious disease, you never get those wrong. But the Lyme question on your board exam is going to have a patient who's living in Wisconsin, who has been hiking or outdoors, and they might throw in a few other things. And they show a rash that started three, two weeks after. Most make that diagnosis because they're keyed into looking for it. I had a couple of patients who 
in the middle of COVID and we had kind of a mini spike of COVID, people were on that COVID getting three, four COVID tests. It must be COVID. And I'm like, no, there's a rash. Did you ask if they've been outside in the last two to yeah. weeks or so? And oh, yeah, I was camping. Here's a rash. And we find out they have actually acute Lyme. 90% of a diagnosis starts with a good history. But then we do use blood work or other testing to help. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the Fibromyalgia Starter Pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that is more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. I think this is where things have been recently changing, but typically early on, we take a couple approaches. We do some antibody testing and we can do is we can look at the different types of antibodies our body makes against certain organisms. In this case, we would look for antibodies that are created against the Lyme bacteria. And we can use that to, you know, if we had an acute infection or if we've had an infection in the past, there is a lot of different proteins from the bacteria. So some of the components of their cell wall in order to come up with the testing. Right now, the CDC recommends a two-step testing. Both steps are required. We do the first step. And if that's negative, then we don't do the next step. And we do that in the hospital pretty much all the time. So that's how we make the diagnosis. But what are the two antibody testers? The first one, kind of a screening. What is that called? We have a screening test. Typically, we have the IgM and IgG testing to detect antibodies. And then we have more spirochete-specific testing that we would follow up with. So one screen is to try to catch as many people with Lyme disease. And then our next set of testing is actually to find those people that truly have a Lyme infection. Yeah. So there'll be a IgM and an IgG, the acute, and if they've had the infection for a longer period of time, that those show up. And how accurate is that two-stage in picking the up line? So we do actually a really great job. At most hospital systems and healthcare systems have adopted this two-step process. And if you come into the hospital or if you come into the office, the lab does this in the background. We put in a Lyme test in our health system and the lab in the background is running the initial test. And if they need to do the second test, usually it's reflexively done. And so most of our lab protocols include that in order to diagnose Lyme. With this two-step process, we are able to diagnose Lyme very effectively. We are able to capture upwards of 90 some percent. The issue becomes when if people are infected too early or too late and the wrong tests are done, then sometimes that can introduce some confusion. And I think I've had patients where we catch it so early, within a day or two, you see a rash, they're sick, they're run down, and we're treating. If there's a high clinical suspicion, we're not waiting for that. Very often I've had where the IgM and IgG don't even come back they haven't had an immune response and creating antibodies has not come back yet and they get better. And we clinically say, well, 
there's acute Lyme symptoms, there's a rash, and they've gotten better. So you can make it without that confirmatory IgM and IgG. A couple of my recent patients who've had this had been in scene a week or two or had symptoms a little longer where the IgM came back positive and IgG was negative. A patient who had thought she had chronic Lyme or had been told she had chronic Lyme, which we'll talk more. But when we got all the testing that she had done previously by traditional doctors showed that she never had Lyme. Interestingly, she came back positive for IgM, which means she had an acute infection, but was negative for IgG, which showed that she never had a past infection, which other labs had shown in the past. But she did actually, for the first time, likely that acute infection. She was really run down and tired, had a headache, and we treated her. And within a few days, she got back to her baseline, a symptom of having some chronic fatigue and some brain fog, but not at the severe level or acute level that she had previously. We use standard regimens, typically doxycycline, late symptoms, IV, ceftriaxone. And most of what I read, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that long courses of antibiotics are not indicated based on the evidence. Yeah. It depends on who you ask, but right now the data suggests that in acute, the two-week course is typically what we do. And we usually generally try to use a longer course for the late stage of Lyme disease. But even then, long is relative because we're talking typically on the order of a month. And so in the past, we were doing a lot longer treatments for Klein, but we've shown that these shorter courses are just as effective as the longer ones. Lyme disease is not always easy to diagnose. Laboratory tests can aid, but like other screening tests, there is a risk of a false negative as well as false positive results, which can complicate or postpone accurate diagnosis and treatment. Currently, the only FDA-cleared tests for Lyme disease are two-step serologic tests. First, what is the pretest probability of a person having Lyme disease? And second, what is the disease stage? Pretest probability is defined as the likelihood of disease before test results are known. How likely is it that a particular patient has Lyme disease? There are three clinical questions that can help make this determination. Has the patient been in an area where Lyme disease is common? Was the patient likely exposed to ticks? And does the patient have symptoms that are characteristic of Lyme? If the answer to any of these questions is no, the patient has a low pretest probability of having Lyme disease. If all the questions are answered yes, then the pretest probability is moderate to high. Those with a low pretest probability should not have testing done. Those with a high pretest probability should strongly be considered. And if it's acute Lyme in the erythema migraine stage, treatment empirically, as if they have an infection with appropriate antibiotics, is also recommended. Most of what we've discussed so far is not especially controversial. We can recognize signs of acute Lyme and diagnose and treat effectively. There is controversy mainly in the functional medicine, alternative medicine world, that the standard two-step serologic testing can't be trusted. 
Chronic Lyme disease is a poorly defined term that describes the attribution of various atypical syndromes to protracted Borrelli-Burgdorferi infection. These syndromes are atypical for Lyme disease in that their lack of objective clinical abnormalities well recognized in Lyme disease and in many cases the absence of serologic evidence of Lyme disease and plausible exposure to the infection. The syndromes usually diagnosed as chronic Lyme disease include chronic pain, fatigue, neuropsychological or neurocognitive symptoms, behavioral symptoms, and various alternative medical diagnosis, most commonly neurologic and rheumatologic diseases. There is debate about whether it is helpful, appropriate, or even acceptable to treat patients with protracted antibiotic courses based on a clinical diagnosis of chronic Lyme disease. The dialogue over chronic Lyme disease provokes strong feelings and has been more acrimonious than any other aspect of Lyme disease. Many patients diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease have experienced tremendous personal sufferings, regardless of whether Borrelia Bergdorfi infection is responsible for their experience. Many patients with chronic Lyme disease diagnosis believe that the medical community has failed to effectively explain or treat their illnesses. In support of them is a community of physicians and alternative treatment providers, as well as politically active advocacy community. This community promotes legislation that has attempted to shield chronic Lyme disease specialists for medical board discipline and medical legal liability for unorthodox practices to mandate insurance coverage of extended parental antibiotics and most visibly to legally challenge a Lyme disease practice guideline. The advocacy community commonly argues that Lyme disease is grossly underdiagnosed and is responsible for an enormous breadth of illnesses. They also say that General scientific and public health establishments ignore or even cover up evidence to this effect. A large body of information about chronic Lyme disease has emerged on the Internet and other media, mainly from patient testimonials and promotional materials by chronic Lyme disease providers. For a medical consumer and physician unfamiliar with this subject, this volume of information can be confusing and difficult to navigate However, the chronic Lyme disease controversy does not straddle a simple divide between two opposed scientific factions. Within the scientific community, the concept of chronic Lyme disease has been rejected. Clinical practice guidelines from numerous American and medical societies discourage the diagnosis of chronic Lyme disease and recommend against treating patients with prolonged or repeated antibiotic courses. Neither national nor public health bodies depart from these recommendations. Here is an example taken from a website touting claims that fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome were misdiagnosed when, in reality, there was Lyme hidden deep within the person's body. The article goes on to say, The misery of chronic illness is very real. But if you're the one who's suffering you know that those around you typically can't see it or understand it. Not family, friends, or even medical providers. They don't know what it's like to push through oppressive fatigue day after day. 
to be tired beyond exhaustion but unable to sleep, to ache all over so badly that all you want to do is curl up in a ball inside of a dark closet, to feel like you have the flu every day of your life but still have to go to work, to be isolated both socially and professionally, to have bizarre symptoms that no one can put a finger on, or to be told that all your tests are normal even though something is obviously wrong, or to become dependent on opioid medications by well-meaning doctors who didn't know enough to know better. I have to give credit to the doctor who does a good job of listening and validating the experience of those who are going through fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. The article goes on to say, after countless hours sitting in a doctor's office and a myriad of tests that provided no answers, my only available choices were the diagnosis of fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome, neither being diagnoses that anyone really wants. For one, they carry a stigma. Many Americans believe fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome are made up excuses for getting out of work and other life obligations. I do have to agree again with that observation. Fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome have a huge stigma. For those who have read my book and have been listeners of this podcast, you recognize that one of my goals has been to remove that stigma, to give real answers and real hope for real pain, real brain fog, and real fatigue with the best of both medical management and lifestyle medicine, looking at each person individually and holistically using an evidence-based approach. That's where we will end this week's episode. I hope you found it enriching. We will continue the discussion next week. Until then, go Team Fibro. Fibro.